I hope you don't come to Salt Company on Thursday just to check off a box, because if that's you, then you probably missed the point of what Luke was trying to tell us right there. I think there's a reality that has happened into the Christian church where we think that Jesus came just to get us out of this horrible torture chamber we call hell, when in reality, he made it very clear. He came to give us something called eternal life. And whenever you see him talking about that or someone asking him about it, he's not just talking about life someday. He's actually talking about the life that is truly life that can be lived right now. See, Jesus came and he said to anyone who would listen, you are living a meaningless life, enslaved to sin, constantly doomed to go through the motions and then end with nothing. And instead he says, what if you would let me heal you and I could bring meaning to every single breath you take? That's the offer that Jesus gives to us. That's what Luke was trying to help us understand is that when the Son of God came into something so finite, he actually opened the possibility for things to go on forever. But it's found in him and only him, and I hope you've come to meet with him. If you've brought a Bible, you should grab it. If you, if you didn't, if you have an app, which is totally fine, I'm not judging you just a little, but go to 1 Corinthians 5. We have a fun passage to open up together tonight. I'm going to read that in a moment. Uh, I don't think any of you went trick-or-treating last night, at least maybe not yourselves. Maybe you took a sibling or you're a nanny. I don't even know what a male nanny would be, so I tried to think of the word right now. What's a male nanny? Anyone know? A manny. Oh, okay. A manny. All right. Just thoughts I'm not going to say. Um, but Finley loves trick-or-treating, uh, and at the very last house, it was so funny. She walks up to it. She's tired. She's dragging what seems like a cement block filled with candy. It's her pumpkin. And we're like, hun, we can go home. It's fine. She's like, no, we have to do this one more house. And she goes to knock, and she totally misses the door. She goes, whoosh, whoosh, because she's so tired, but so desperately wants the candy, knocks, and the, it was just so great, so cute. <laughs> Halloween's great when you have kids or little people to take with you, and it's way less creepy because then you can eat the candy because you know she can't all of it. It's just a great thing. I don't want to go into it. So right now, as you found yourself in 1 Corinthians 5, I want you to know that every day that you wake up, someone is telling you a story. Every single day that you wake up, someone is telling you a story, and you actually get it through notifications, through apps. You get it through TV shows, commercials, movies, uh, BuzzFeed. I don't know where you find your news, but what you're actually doing is you're ingesting stories. Our president is telling a story with every tweet he sends out, right? Good or bad. Our world revolves around stories, some meaningless like the lives of celebrities, some significant like the loss of lives and national tragedies. But all of us, all the time, are constantly being formed. You live in what is called a cultural moment. And it is very important for you as a follower of Jesus to realize what is exactly happening in your cultural moment. I believe that if you do not begin to discover what kind of world you are living in, you will live a Christian life that is short-circuited, confused, and actually not as kingdom-impacting as it possibly could be. And the cultural moment that we are in has all kinds of narratives, but tonight, one or a few of those narratives has very significant impact on this passage as we bring it into our world today. See, we live in a world where all of you are snowflakes, right? You're all special and unique 
and different and wonderful. And no one can tell you otherwise. All the things you choose to be are wonderful and you're all going to get a participation medal, right? It's just how it goes. Or we live in another, this is also part of that, which means you can't judge anyone. You cannot tell anyone that the actions of their life are right or wrong. If you begin to do that, you will actually begin to be called intolerant. You'll be called a bigot. You'll be pushed out and you'll be told that you're judgmental and there's no place for you. We're not allowed to tell anyone anything about the way that they're living their lives because we're snowflakes, we're special, and we've elevated truth to whatever the individual says is true. We are hyper-individualized. We're supposed to leave people alone. Their choices are their choices, and their truth is their truth. All of it is subjective, and all of it is objective, and I'm telling you right now, those narratives that you subconsciously probably believe or live out are poisoning you as the future of the church. They are poisoning your ability to carry God's church forward, and I want to show you why. Let's open 1 Corinthians 5. I'm going to read the whole thing, and we'll get down to business. Just so you know, the Corinthians had some issues. What's new? Let's do this. Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles, which is non-Christians. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Here it is. Remember that one? People say salt's a cult, and this is going on in this church, right? (laughs) And you are arrogant, right? You are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and removed from your congregation, the one who did this? Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. He's just basically saying, my thoughts are with you. Go after this guy. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, I am with you in spirit. With the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan. Wow. For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so you may be a new unleavened batch as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And here's the last part. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler, whatever that is. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove or purge the evil person from among you. Okay. Like I said, Corinth still has issues, right? They are still refusing to allow their faith to influence their culture. Their culture is still, and now even in a really odd way, influencing their faith. And you begin by reading that first sentence. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And what that tells you right off the bat is that God has standards for his people. God has standards for his people. Holiness matters to God. 
And they're not arbitrary, right? It's not like, well, just because I want to keep you from having fun or stop you from enjoying things. No, he has set these standards up and asked us to be set apart for a purpose or many purposes. I'm just going to give you three of them, right? One of the first things he wants us to stand apart for is because he wants to protect us from sin, right? I have advised Finley that to put a metal fork into a light socket is a bad move, right? Why? Not because I'm like, because it's just way too fun and I love when you're bored and miserable. No, but because I know that what you think might be fun is actually probably very bad for you, right? No one wants that. I don't want that. Although if her hair, never mind. Uh. God's always asking us to refrain from things to actually give us greater freedom. See, sin always brings slavery. The way of God always brings freedom. So when he tells you don't, it's so that you can live in freedom. He's trying to protect us. The second thing that God's trying to do in having these standards, excuse me, I still have a cold, is to give hope to the world. What hope do we offer the world if we look no different than any of them? Why on earth would the world look in here and see a bunch of people who live just like them and think that it's a place they want to be a part of? Why would they do that? We need to offer them hope with the way that we live our lives, and it needs to be different than the world's standards. And then lastly is he's God. He's God. We should listen. We should probably trust him and know that we can trust him because it wasn't like he just showed up one day and started ordering you around. No, remember he paid for you with the blood of his own son to bring you in. And so God immediately helps us see that we are set apart, that we have standards for the way we live. And now here's the issue for the Corinthian church. They were set apart, but for a very bad reason, right? Incest. If you don't know what that is, I'm not going to tell you. Um, He says, the kind of sexual immorality. Now, here's the thing about the whole incest deal. It was not even tolerated among the Gentiles, right? A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So it says it's not even tolerated. So this is just a quick disclaimer, helpful hint. If you're doing something that seems nasty or weird to the world around you, you are probably way off the mark, right? The world was looking in on a church and saying, that's gross. That should never be the case. And especially in that Corinthian culture, it was an honor-shame culture, which just meant that you, as a, a child, as a husband, as a wife, whatever role you had, your one goal was to bring honor and not shame to your family, to your friends. You, you wanted to honor them with all that you did, and you wanted to do everything you could to avoid shaming them in any way. And the Jews actually had a law against this whole incest business. In Leviticus 18, they made it pretty clear, you shouldn't do this. And you kind of think like, that's just weird. Why does that have to be a law? Well, here's kind of just a fun little history fact. In Jewish tradition, wandering out in the wilderness, if your mom died, let's say uh, some of you are 19. So you're 19-year-old, 19-year-old dudes, right? If your mom died, it was actually custom for your dad to go find a wife your age, right? Yeah, that's kind of weird. So dad brings home this really cute Israelite girl into your tent, and maybe, I don't know, puberty's already happened, things are weird, you're in that moment, it was a law, it was a rule. So you might think like, yeah, if dad remarried like a 50-year-old woman, why, it's just weird like that. You have to remember, culture was different, they were probably younger, it's not like a cougar thing, okay, I just wanted to say that, 
You need to know that. Other thing, the Romans, the Romans, the, the Corinthian was ruled by Rome. They had a law that said that if you got caught sleeping with your father's wife, they would literally exile you to an island. Like, just see ya, we're done with you, right? Good luck living on Weirdo Island with all the other misfit toys because you were a creep and we didn't want it, right? They would have this, this law that would send them away. So one, they're tolerating something that the world wouldn't even tolerate. And then look at their attitude towards it. This was the second issue. Their attitude was arrogance. It says later they were boasting. If you look at verse two, it says, you are arrogant. Like you're like, can you believe this? Like we're legit. Look at what we have. Like Bill's kind of a creep, but he's still here and we love him, right? Like they were so hyped about this. And Paul says, no, you should be filled with grief. That word in the Greek literally meant to be filled with sadness for the dead. Like they were missing the mark as they were hyping it up and believing in it was this great thing. Paul's like, no, you should be filled with grief and you should remove this person from your congregation. I've pronounced judgment on this guy. And as I, I thought about that, you're, you're arrogant about this, your attitude towards it. I don't think we have the same problem, right? I actually think we live in a culture that is so sexually perverted and is so okay with all kinds of different sin that it's highly unlikely that we would be okay or boasting or arrogant about something like that. But we still have a very serious problem because we should be pure then. If it is so clearly messed up in our culture, then we should be the exact opposite. And that actually is where I think we find our problem today. Our culture, our Christian culture, not non-Christian, our Christian culture, our Christian family's problem is not arrogance, it's tolerance and acceptance. So, it's not, so if Paul was writing to us, he would be saying, and you are tolerant, or you are apathetic, or you are accepting, you should be filled with grief. Again, remember the cultural lies that we believe, that's what's seeping in. And here's what's really dangerous for us in the church is although we don't boast or, or even say like, look, I'm accepting of this. We are apathetic. We're tolerant, but we parade it under the word grace. We parade or hide our tolerance under the word grace, which is very dangerous because I'm telling you right now, grace is not accepting and it's not tolerant of sin at all. And we'll explain. But a misunderstanding of grace has led the church to a modern-day attitude of tolerance and apathy. And now grace is abused all the time in the name of acceptance. And I want to talk about the source of this issue. The first is the cultural moment, like I said. We're not supposed to tell anyone they're wrong. And it's true, you shouldn't go around as a Christian telling non-Christians what to do, but you should absolutely care about what the people in this room who claim to know Jesus are doing. You should care very deeply about the lives that they live and the behavior that they display. But our cultural moment has affected that. But then there's also this other problem. It's a false dichotomy. And I think you've maybe heard this before. Correct me if I'm wrong, but have you ever heard like, are you more grace-based or truth-based? Maybe you've heard that. Are you, are you more grace-based or truth-based? That's crap, okay? There is no such thing as being more grace-based or truth-based. It's not a thing. I'll tell you why. Grace never calls wrong things right or tolerates sin in the life of another disciple of Jesus. 
Jesus was full of grace and truth. He never excused anyone's sin, but he spoke into it in a way that showed them the truth. The grace of God can only come to you if you acknowledge that something is wrong. And so at, at the worst, so maybe you're a grace person. To be honest with you, like I can stand up here and say these really strong things to you, but if you get me in a one-on-one conversation, like at my best, I'm just non-confrontational, right? Maybe you're like me, you're like, yeah, confrontation, I don't like it, it's not my thing, it makes me pee a little, like that's okay. So at like your best, you're like, I'm just non-confrontational, but at your worst, and I'm not trying to mean you're a coward, okay? And you're unloving. Like you are so afraid that you're not actually willing to tell them that something is very wrong. And then maybe you're a truth person. So like at your best, you just care deeply for them. You're passionate about it. So you take the truth bat and you bash your friends' heads in, which is telling them the truth, right? But you're just, you love them so much that you just gotta let them know. And on the other side of that, some people are just jerks, right? You just, you're just rude and you're mean and you think you're right and you just love telling people when they're wrong. That's why those two ditches don't work. That's why they really shouldn't exist. Like the grace people, they let their friends drive off the metaphorical cliff and the truth people, they bludgeon and hurt their friends with the truth bat because they're just being a jerk. Like think about it this way. Me and Luke, this is hypothetical. We go, we get a peach and blueberry smoothie from Panera. Don't judge me, okay? They're delicious and I'm trying to watch my figure. So you get one of those and I look at Luke with a big smile wherever you are, and I just go, is there anything in my teeth? And it looks like I murdered a Smurf, okay? (laughs) Like blue, right? If Luke goes, you're good, man. That's not loving. Then I would be sitting up here and all of you'd be like, did he have a bunch of like BB gun shots go through his mouth? Like what's wrong with him? What's in his teeth? It's, It's not loving at all. It actually takes grace and truth to tell me that there's something in my teeth. It's grace enough to show me that something's wrong and then it's the truth to tell me it's right there. You should fix it. There is no such thing as being more grace or more truth. It's just not how it works. It takes grace and truth to tell people what's going on in their lives. And the worst friends, wherever you are, Matt Bauman, he thinks it's funny to leave people with stuff in their teeth. He's like, yeah, I just think it's great. Forget you, Matt. I see you. But you know what Matt's really good at? He does not tolerate sin in the life of his friends. So I'll let you pass on that one, okay? The worst friends are the ones who don't have the guts to tell you there's something in your teeth. How much worse a brother or sister in Christ who won't tell you that something you're doing is destroying your soul? How much worse a brother or sister who's not willing to tell you that something you're doing, some way you're living, is going to destroy your soul. See, because behind the act of incest was the real issue. This dude was a hypocrite, okay? So it's not like you should go around looking for anybody who's just sexually perverted or just think sexual sin. Think hypocrisy, okay? Think someone who lives when they're called functional atheists, okay? They are all over the church. They say they're a Christian, but their life is a godless one. That's what was wrong with this guy, He's not talking about the person in this room who's been fighting the same sin and you just can't seem to win, but you want to. We're not talking about people who make mistakes and don't want to keep making them right now. 
This person is arrogant, maybe, about what they're doing, dismissive or apathetic about the sin in their life. If you're in this room and you're like, I think it's me, like, gosh, I failed the other day, but I confessed to my connection group leader, I'm telling you right now, this person probably isn't worried about confessing. And so those of you who might begin to feel anxious about, is this me? I want you to know that if you want to see sin leave your life, and if you are fighting and you are trying, you are not the person who needs to be called out. You are the person who needs to hear Jesus say, get up, I love you, keep going. The person that we are dealing with, the person we're going after, is not agonizing over their sin. They're not trying to stop it. They say things, or they don't say it, but live out a life that says, well, the Bible is Jesus' interpretation. I'm gonna keep doing me. And I'm telling you, Jesus saved you in your sin, but he never intended you to stay there. Jesus saved you in your sin, but he never intended you and I to stay there. The most unloving thing you and I could do to someone in the family of God is let them be content with their double life, with their hypocrisy. But the most loving thing you could do is call them out and let them know the way they're living is not okay. And that's what you do, but Paul explains it in a weird way that we need to talk about. So what do you do with this person? Well, verse 4 helps us understand. It says, when you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Okay, hand them over to Satan. So like, do you get the goat's blood and do a little ritual with a Voldemort hood? Like, what does that look like, right? That's weird. Like, that sounds like some weird horror movie stuff that maybe you watched last night. Like, that's, okay, that's not what he's talking about. It's not what he's talking about. What is he talking about? First thing you need to know, God's people, one of the most common, if not the most common way to describe them is a family, okay? It's a family. So if you call yourself a Christian, you are saying, I am part of the family of God, gathered as his people. And if you are one of his people, then you have his spirit dwelling in you, which means the people of God are meant to be his sacred space in the world. The spirit of God and his holy ground is where his people are, not just in the buildings they gather in, okay? Not just the buildings they gather in, but where his people are. And so to accept someone into that space or that family would also almost be offering them a level of protection, like saying, yes, I accept you, you're part of this family, and you're in. And see, in ancient Israel, they actually had land. And the rest of the world around them and them included thought, okay, This is God's space. When you step across the border into Israel, you are stepping on holy ground. And so to cast someone out was actually to send them into the realm of other gods. Demons, gods, false ones, idols, all that. So basically what he's saying is, hey, hand them over. Let them know they are not a part of this family. They are not under his protection. They're not in the holy ground. They're outside the family of God. And those clearly drawn lines of Christian fellowship protect both the people of God and the individual that you're trying to uh, wake up so that no one gets deceived. What they would actually do back in ancient Israel is hold a funeral for the person that they would excommunicate. Like, yeah, that's harsh. They used to kill them. So the Romans took that away from them. And so their next interpretation was, well, well, we'll hold a funeral. We'll excommunicate them. You no longer part of the family. But 
for us to try to aimlessly figure this out um, would be a waste of our time because Jesus actually stepped into that tradition and he totally redefined what this kind of process looked like. So if you're wondering, how do I hand someone over to Satan without goat's blood and a ritual? Here's where you go. You go to Matthew 18, okay? You can flip there. I didn't put it up on the screen because I want you to bring your Bibles. Maybe that's mean of me, but you can just listen. So Jesus kind of laid out what it looks like to confront someone in this position. He helps us understand what it's supposed to look like. Matthew 18, verse 15 He says this, you're still flipping there, I'll give you a minute while I drink some water so I don't sound like a barking dog. Matthew 18, verse 15, okay, it says this, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Okay, so you go to the person one-on-one and you're not a jerk, You're filled with grief, remember. Your aim in this is to be filled with grace and truth, but to be honest, not gossiping about them. You don't go around to all of your friends and go, I'm gonna do this to Stephanie and she's gonna get it and this is what she did. You don't go around gossiping. No, you go, okay, sorry, Stephanie. I feel like God's telling me like this something's wrong in their life and the attitude, you have to hear this. The worst thing that could happen is if you left this room thinking, I can go bludgeon my friends to death for all their hypocrisy, okay? The attitude in all of this is restoration, protection, and love. Paul is saying you should be filled with grief as though someone has died. Not like good riddance, they're dead, but oh God, why have they died? So you go to this person one-on-one and you say, I love you, but I see this thing in your life that doesn't match up with the teachings of Jesus. I think this is actually hurting you, not helping you. I think you're, you're gonna find that if you keep going this way, you cannot continue to live the Christian life. And now look, it says, if they listen to you, you've won them over. Throw a party, sweet. They repent, you move on, that's awesome. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along. So grab a few of your friends in your connection group or your friend group so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. It's basically turn the volume up. If they wouldn't listen to just you, go grab two people who know them just as well or pretty close and say, hey, we love you, but what you're doing is wrong. It's not helpful. It's harmful. Leave your sin behind and follow Jesus. And then it says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Okay, so does that mean you text me and let me know? We got to bring Stephanie on stage and boo her, right? Boo, look at her. No, that's not what this means, okay? In a really big context like this, what that probably means is you grab your connection group. You say, okay, connection group. We've been in community with this person. We've been living life with this person. You go to them. You say, look, your family is here. Maybe you do call one of us on staff. You bring us in if we know them or know you pretty well. And we just sit there and we say, we love you. Leave your sin behind. Don't do this anymore. Again, the attitude's not to embarrass, but to save. You're not bringing all of them to embarrass them. You're actually trying to show them, almost like an intervention. Look how many people love you and want to help you. How can we do that together? And then, if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. When I think about a pagan and tax collector, I think about the guy who loved hanging out with them the most, and his name was Jesus. And he loved pagans and tax collectors. He loved them like crazy. 
but he treated them in the sin they were living in. So what this means is you don't treat them like they're a Christian anymore, right? You don't let them think that everything's okay. You treat them like they're not a Christian. And what do you do with people who aren't Christians? You love them like crazy and you tell them about Jesus. You want them to love and follow Jesus. Your attitude's filled with grief, humility, sadness, and love. Okay, you never question their salvation, so you should never utter the phrase, I don't think you're saved because you are not God. You should not say that. You never say, I don't think you're saved or anything like that. And so what's actually happening, it talks about this whole destruction of the flesh so that their spirit may be saved. Like, guys, this whole thing Handing them over to Satan is like saying, hey, go into the world. You keep holding on to this pleasure that the world says will make you feel better, fine, go have it. Which seems counterintuitive. You'd want to be like, hey, stop doing that. But if they really won't listen, you basically say, hey, fine. If you want that relationship, if you want that website, if you want that liquid, whatever it is, if you want that, you can have it. But stop pretending. Go in hopes that they have a rock bottom moment and come running back. Really, it's hope that they go thinking, I'm okay, I'm gonna pursue this life, and they realize what we all know, it's meaningless, and they come back to the family of God. It's protection, not punishment. You have to hear that. It's protection, not punishment. The purpose of church discipline is salvation. The purpose of church discipline is redemption, restoration, healing, and new life, not punishment. The purpose of church discipline is not to punish someone. Jesus took the punishment for sin on the cross. I do not actually spank my daughter to punish her. I actually do that to protect her, to help her see that a life of sin will hurt, but a life following and honoring God will bring life and healing. And so as a last resort, you send someone out to protect them and the family, hopefully like shock therapy, like an intervention. It results in a trip to rehab. There's There's just this moment that hopefully they see the severity of the situation and they come running back or they find emptiness long enough in those pleasures of sin and they come back to Jesus. And now here's the interesting thing in all that I've said and even all that Paul writes, he's assuming, which is not something we assume, that God is holding the community responsible for the sin of the individual. Do you see that? God is holding the community responsible for the sin of the individual. Why? Because sin does not just affect the person sinning. It never works that way. 1 Corinthians 5, this is not about a man in sin. It's about a church that is not dealing rightly or lovingly with that man. That's what this passage is about. As much as our cultural moment would preach that, no, you're an individual and your body is your body, and I'm not saying that as some, like, thing against women's rights. I'm all about women. I have lots of them in my home, okay? I just don't want you to be like, gosh, that guy hates women. I love it. But what we have is this culture where we think you get to do you, and that's the only person it affects. But I'm telling you, ask anyone in this room whose parents got divorced. Did their divorce just affect you? Or if you have a sibling who has train-wrecked their life, Are you really unaffected by their behavior? We are a family. And when one of our family members chooses to hurt themselves, it hurts us. And so God is saying, you have to see that I'm holding you responsible for the individual as a community. That's what he says in verses 
6 through 8, he says, Your boasting's not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Leaven was Jewish imagery for evil. Uh, Think cancer, okay? A little bit of cancer can spread to the whole body and totally mess it up. He says, clean out the old leaven so you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We'll explain that. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with the old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So, like I said, think cancer. Sin is like leaven or like cancer. Unrepentant sin in the body of Christ has a cancerous effect on the whole family. It affects the whole family. It first affects the witness of our community because we don't look any different. I actually think that hypocrisy in the church is the greatest thing hurting its witness. The hypocrisy of the church is the greatest thing hurting its witness and then it hurts the relationships in the family. It separates. Sin always creates distance. And then it says this whole thing about Christ, our Passover lamb, being sacrificed. Okay, it's Passover imagery. What was the Passover? Back in the book of Exodus, the uh, Egyptian pharaoh would not let God's people go. Uh, And so finally he sent one last curse. The firstborns are going to die unless you take an unblemished lamb and put the blood over your doorpost. Then you will be passed over and your firstborn won't die. So the Jewish people did that. Pharaoh did not. His son died in anguish and grief. He says, fine, you can leave And so the Jewish people would celebrate this feast over and over again, remembering, oh, when God delivered us. But then Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, redefined the feast when he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. This is my blood poured out for you. Drink it in remembrance of me. And so when he says, observe the feast, he's saying, live in a way that honors what Jesus did to free you from your sin. Live in a way, observe, see, honor the feast, honor what Jesus did by paying for your sins. And then Paul finally turns to the end, and this is where I'll finish, because they still were getting some things wrong. (laughs) They were judging people, but they were judging the wrong people. Verse nine, he says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. Okay, what this means is you should absolutely, as a Christian, be immersed and connected to all kinds of people who are far from God. You should absolutely be in friendship, relationship, proximity to people who do not know Jesus. But in that proximity, you should not be judging their lives. It is not your job to sit there and judge them for what they're doing if they say, Jesus is not my Lord. He says in verse 11, actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and does all those things. And here's the problem that we have is we are often quicker to judge those outside the world than we are to deal with the sin right in here. We are so quick to judge someone for being a homosexual, but we are just fine with being really greedy. We are so quick to look at the outside world and the way they live and find them lesser than us and not see the pride that comes along with that. You understand that some of you spend more money on clothes, coffee, and pizza than you do on helping people around you. Atheists are outpacing you 
and how they love the orphan and the widow, and yet you look at them and judge them because they say, I believe and know God, but you're no different because your actions show that you don't seem to believe in a God either. And this is not some moment where we can where I can beat you down. It's where I want you to see that Jesus did not come so that you would believe some right things and get out of the eternal torture chamber. He looked at you and he looked at you and he saved you and he said, can I heal you? Not someday, but right now. And then he says this crazier thing. He says, go, be me wherever you are. And you know who Jesus was always hanging out with? The sinners and the tax collectors. He was constantly judged by who? The religious hypocrites. He was constantly judged by the religious hypocrites for hanging out with people who needed him most. What I so badly want for us, for myself, is to be a community where people look at our lives and they go, they live so differently than me, and yet they love me so much more than I deserve. Imagine if every person you know who doesn't know Jesus said that about you. If every person you knew that doesn't know Jesus said that about you, that your life is so different that it shines like the light that it's supposed to be, they just can't help like a moth to a flame be drawn to it. And when they get there, they don't get judged, they get loved. That you love them better than anyone else. It would turn the world upside down. It would turn the world upside down. Jesus was constantly with these kinds of people, loving them, spending time with them, and constantly calling out the religious hypocrisy that he saw in the Pharisees. What this passage is telling us is to be like Jesus. And what it's actually telling us is that the most loving thing you might do tonight before you leave is pull someone aside and mention something you've seen in their life. Or maybe what you need to do is actually repent of something you know is sitting in your heart, whether it's the judgment you've put on someone who doesn't know Jesus or sin that you've actually really enjoyed and ignored when Jesus has asked you to let it go. But all of this is grounded in hope. Do you realize that if it wasn't for Jesus coming to you, maybe the religious hypocrite, or coming to you, the sinner, that you wouldn't be sitting here? that Jesus did not look at our lives and say it's too messy or I'm just gonna make a judgment call now, but he actually came so that the judgment call on your life would come after when he stands in your place so that he can look on you and say, you are perfect, you are loved, you are my son and you are my daughter. And then he does this crazy thing where he says, hey, be a light in a dark place and don't let anything put that light out. Don't let anything hinder its ability to shine. And then when people get close to it, let it be warm and inviting and watch me turn the world upside down. Would we be that kind of church and would we be those kinds of people? Let me pray. Jesus, what is absolutely true is there's plenty of hypocrisy in my life. I am not gonna stand up here as though I somehow have some righteous achievement that I've somehow gained something that someone in this room doesn't have. I know for a fact there are students in this room who love people way better than I do, who they have people sitting next to them because of how much they loved and didn't judge. And I praise God. I praise you for that. I pray that that would happen more. I pray for Salt Company. I pray that we would be a people whose holiness 
would be so evident, and yet whose love for people would be all the more evident with it, that they would walk side by side together and set the world on fire, that we would be a people that shows that when Jesus comes into your life, everything changes. And would you now, Jesus, show us our hypocrisy, show us the things that we've enjoyed and not let go, and help us to be like you. I want it to be said of every believer in this room, man, they hang out with a lot of non-Christians. I want people to look at their lives and wonder why are they always with people who don't know Jesus? And their answer would be, I'm just trying to be like the one who came for me. Would that be true of us? In Jesus' name, amen.